Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. My guest today is Cass Sunstein, the Carl N. Llewellyn Distinguished Service Professor of Jurisprudence in the Law School at the University of Chicago. Today, we're going to talk about his latest book, Infotopia. Cass, welcome to Econ Talk. Thank you so much. Infotopia looks at a fundamental problem of decision-making, which is that knowledge is dispersed. It's spread out among many people inside our own individual minds. And the book deals with the question of how can we aggregate that knowledge across people and sometimes across time. And the book talks about different ways of aggregating information. And I thought I'd start off with a nice quote from the book that summarizes the different methods that that you look at. Here's the quote. First, groups might use the statistical average of the independent judgments of their members. Second, groups might attempt to improve on those independent judgments by using deliberation and asking for the reasoned exchange of facts, ideas, and opinions. Perhaps members will vote anonymously or otherwise after deliberation has occurred. Third, groups might use the price system and develop some kind of market through which group members or those outside of the group buy and sell on the basis of their judgments. Fourth, groups might enlist the Internet to obtain the information and perspectives of anyone who cares to participate. So I I thought we'd talk about the first example that you use and that you talk about in the book, which is statistical averages, which is um, averaging the judgments or information that, that individual members of a group have. What do, you, what do you mean by that? Talk about its relative success, uh, where it works and where it doesn't. Uh, this is something that's gotten a lot of attention in the last few years um, on the uh, heels of uh, the James Surowiecki book, The Wisdom of Crowds. And the basic idea is if you get a bunch of people together and you ask them what they think the weight of uh, horses or how many beans are in a jar or how many uh, times uh, something unusual happened, typically, uh, as if by magic, the statistical average will get it right. So what many businesses have been excited about and uh, the government has started to get excited about is that the statistical average of large groups, in some domains at least, is uh, unerringly and uncannily uh, on the mark. And what you mean by getting it right there is that not only is is the statistical average of the individuals a better estimate than often any individual member of the group, even an expert in the group, but also very, very accurate relative to the right answer. Right. It's a, it, it, there's an objective fact, which is how much does the latest winner of the Kentucky Derby weigh, uh, Barbaro, I guess. Uh, um, and it turns out that even people who don't know a lot about horses, uh, if you ask a bunch of them, the uh, average answer is going to be pretty close. I did that actually with the University of Chicago Law School faculty, which knows nothing about horses, and the average answer basically nailed it. Are you sure they know nothing about horses? I'm sure they know nothing about horses. <laughs> I'm pretty confident, too. Uh, in the uh, the Wisdom of Crowds, Sir Wiki's book uh, starts with that example of a famous uh, experiment that Galton did uh, trying where goers, attendees of a fair had to guess the average weight of an ox. 
I have to confess I'm a little skeptical about the data. Uh, I think they got within a pound of the ox's actual weight, the average, even though some of the fairgoers were not experienced. And my, some of my skepticism is that I'm not sure they could weigh the ox accurately. Well, whether, <laughs> whether or not that one is accurate, the, the same phenomenon has been uncovered in multiple domains. And I can say a little bit about the mechanism behind it, and then I can say a little bit about the limitations. Yeah, please do. Um, an intuitive way into it is the Condorcet jury theorem, which suggests if you have a group of people, each of whom is more likely to get the right answer than the wrong answer, um, and you... Uh, uh, and you ask them, uh, the likelihood that the majority will get it right approaches 100% as the size of the group expands. That's uh, Condorcet's less famous theorem. The more famous had to do with cycling and such. Right, uh, but the majority think, rule. But I think this one is uh, at least equally important. It's very so, cool. So if I can say a little bit about why it works and when it doesn't work. Yeah. Uh, if you have a, a large group of people, and most of them are, are likely to get it right, uh, it just stands to reason, the arithmetic's pretty simple, that as the group gets bigger and bigger, the majority gets overwhelmingly likely to get it right. And Condorcet's result has um, held up for uh, pluralities also. So if people, basically the intuition is if people have are better than random guessers, uh, the majorities are going to be really, really good if the groups are large enough. Um, so that is a way into some of the reasons, one of the reasons that the surveys tend to do very well, the average tends to get it. But as Condorcet also said, that if the group suffers from a systematic bias uh, in terms of getting the reality right, or if they're more likely to be wrong than right because of a systematic bias or some other problem, then the likelihood that the group will get it right falls to 0% as the size of the group expands. So the problem with um, general excitement about crowd wisdom is that if you ask a bunch of people some question where there's some uh, reason to think that, that most of them are going to get it wrong, then the majority is definitely going to get it wrong. And at my law school, the University of Chicago, while people nailed the weight of the winner of the Kentucky Derby, they actually were way off in terms of the number of times the Supreme Court had invalidated state or federal law. There was a systematic bias in favor of small numbers on that uh, because the salient examples are few. And, and so this is the limitation of crowd wisdom. Yeah, it's um, – I, I do a number of seminars with congressional staffers. I also do some of those similar seminars with journalists, and I ask them often um, what proportion of the American workforce earns the minimum wage or less – and I've also done it with law professors ask that question in a seminar. And they systematically uh, – the median answer for that is always about 20 percent, and the average is quite a bit higher. In fact, the actual number is about 3 percent, a little bit under. So it's kind of um, – I've always been a little bit skeptical of the wisdom of crowds in those settings where people don't have any incentive to get it right and certainly um, have often have biases. I guess the um, – the cases where it's proven very very accurate, things like the weight of horses, the number of jelly beans in a jar is an example you mentioned that Sir Wiki also mentions. It's not very important to get those numbers accurately. Uh, it's not clear uh, in, in those settings whether those are the right 
problems to be asking people and seeing whether statistical averages get it right. Right. The, the harder questions are questions of judgment. You mentioned um, we'll, we'll get into it in a minute about deliberation, but you mentioned uh, things like whether to invade Cuba um, in 1962. That that's a question where the right answer is difficult to know in advance. Uh, Maybe difficult to know after the fact, even though it was botched horribly. So, I, I, I'd like. Have you thought about what, where these statistical averages are useful, uh, as opposed to as opposed to a parlor trick, right? It's yeah. rather remarkable that you could ask yeah, a group I, of faculty I, I, I these questions. I don't, I don't think it's a good good criticism to say that the um, that the weight of a horse is. Um, uh, not very important because it's the mechanism that's important, not the example. The mechanism is that if you have a large group of people, most of whom are more likely than not to get it right, the likelihood that the group will get it right expands as the size of the group expands. And Scott Page at Michigan has different mechanisms that come to the same general conclusion about random error and how it cancels out in large groups. So the the, the policy the upshot where the, the stakes are high is if you're in a business and you want to know whether uh, a product's going to be available by a certain date or whether there are going to be significant profits from a certain uh, line or whether a risk is worth taking, uh, if you have some confidence in the people there, you really want their independent judgments and uh, ask them and figure out what the majority says. That's often much better than uh, going for the person you like best, uh, the person you trust most. So the upshot for business, the upshot for government is that uh, in a group of people where there's uh, actual knowledge, uh, collecting independent judgments and uh, taking the average is often the best way to go. And in fact, statistical uh, collections of experts uh, typically outperform uh, individual experts in figuring out business-related or uh, questions or questions about what's going to happen in the economy. So the 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 parlor trick examples are interesting because they show a general phenomenon. And once we understand the uh, the analysis behind the parlor trick, then we can figure out. Uh, the general general use of the uh, of the survey. I take your point. the The problem I have with with the examples, though, is is not just it's not just the method, because to show whether the method works, you have to use objective, typically objective, tangible, measurable stuff like the number of beans or how much. Horse sure, and whether GDP is going to increase by more than two percent in the next uh, period, or whether the employment rate is going to jump, or whether there are map- weapons of mass destruct- destruction in Iraq, or whether climate change is going to produce uh, one degree or two degree warming by 2050. So the, the range of factual questions on which it's nice to know the answer is very large. And the think, existence of objective answers to those questions is uh, is, is is usual. That's right. not exceptional. It is revealed ex post. So I, I guess the question is: in those settings, has it done as well? Do you do you feel? Oh yeah, no question. Uh, and it's the 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 simplest way is the Condorcet jury theorem, where in terms of uh, if you get a bunch of experts making some prediction about the economy or about how a business product's going to do. Uh, the, the method works, 
and we have a sense of why it works because people are more likely than not to get it right. And we know when it won't work. It won't work when the relevant people are subject to a systematic bias. So the trick for businesses, if we're talking about the business domain, is to think, is this an area more like... uh, uh, the horse one, where there isn't a systematic bias, or is it more like the Supreme Court invalidations one, where there is? But businesses all over the country are are, are using this method, and uh, and it, it is, it's a helpful tool. Yeah, well, that's one of the most interesting parts of the book. Why don't you talk about some of those businesses and what they're doing? Well, I'll talk about prediction markets, which are a variation on the statistical averages as I as I see them. What the prediction markets try to do is um, get a bunch of people to make a, a bet about whether a product's going to be available, an office is going to open, uh, something's going to turn out to be profitable, profitable at what level, that sort of thing, questions that businesses are really interested in. And the way the prediction market works is instead of surveying people, some of whom may have uh, no confidence in their own judgment, but they're willing to answer a survey, uh, you ask people if they'd like to bet. And the bet can be uh, virtual, meaning it's just about reputation and honor. You're not going to get anything from it. Or it can be, as in offshore prediction markets, for real money, gambling. Or it can be, as some companies have done, for a chance to enter a lottery with a certain probability of success, where if you win the lottery, you get a shirt or something. Uh, not purely an honor, uh, but uh, but vague enough in terms of the payoff so as not to amount to gambling in violation of state law. So what but the idea com- is to give people incentives to above and beyond the honor. And, right. And That's what's great about this, that this is an incentive-based um, system, as a survey isn't, where uh, entry is fully voluntary, depending on how much you think you know, and where uh, the price is going to change over time as people decide to participate when they see the price being too low or too high. And what's happened at such companies at Microsoft and Hewlett-Packard and Eli Lilly and Google is that they've used prediction markets uh, to try to have a sense of uh, how things are going to develop at the firm. Uh, Google has made a lot of its data public uh, to me, for which I am very grateful. And what's happened at Google is that the prices are probabilities. So if the price suggests that something is 80% likely to come true, it actually does come true 80% of the time. That's been Google's track record. If the price suggests it's going to come true 20% of the time, then it comes true 20% of the time. It's been, uh, that's been really like magic. But the mechanism behind it is anything but magical. It's that, um, the Condorcet jury theorem, remember, predicts that large groups are likely to get it right if people are more than 50% write themselves, and people aren't going to participate in a prediction market unless at least they have a degree of confidence that they are more than 50% likely to have it right. And so the economic incentive plus the dynamic quality of the prediction market, it's like like the stock market extends over time, uh, provides 
a kind of built-in safeguard against the risk of a system, systematic bias or uh, pervasive error. Because if people are, are saying the office is going to open by January 1st, and that's uh, a loony prediction, then other people are going to bet against them and the price will correct itself. I just have to go back and ask you about your informal surveys of your colleagues about the weight of the Kentucky Derby winner and the uh, what was the other question you mentioned? The, the number of times the Supreme Court right. has invalidated state or so federal law. When you asked them the question, I, I assume you didn't promise a prize for the best answer, uh, but did you make their guesses public ex post? No. Okay. So they complete, but, but, complete anonymity. Okay. So they did well on the horse example without any incentive, uh, and they did because evidently they were fairly had some rough idea about horse weight, and they did badly on the Supreme Court because they had biases that overwhelmed the the matter. But in the case of Google, the claim would be that in these prediction markets where uh, an accurate uh, guess gives you some uh, mild financial payoff, uh, you're you're trying to keep out the people who uh, are totally uninformed or misinformed. What kind of numbers – do you know how many people are participating in these markets? And presumably – I'm wondering if Google did any experimenting with just doing the statistical average, surveying employees in large numbers, and did they find that these prediction markets where there was an incentive performed better? Do you have any data on that? Um, well, uh, in prediction markets in general, uh, there are many thousands of participants. Uh, uh, Trade Sports, for example, has thousands and thousands of participants. The Iowa Electronic Markets, which involves elections, has uh, thousands and thousands of participants. Uh, Google, I don't have the numbers, but uh, it would be surprising if it's in the thousands. For different markets, more likely dozens or, or hundreds. Uh, even thin markets with small numbers of traders have generally come up with really good results. Uh, Google did not, uh, so far as I'm aware, do a, a survey as compared to the 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 prediction market. But there's logical reason to believe, and I think this is built into your question, that the prediction market will outperform the survey. Uh, and the reason is that there's an economic incentive uh, that would be a spur to get it right. And I think more fundamentally still, uh, that if you ask me when uh, when Google's office in Moscow is going to open, uh, I, I would answer a survey question if I was instructed to do that, but I'm not going to bet any money on it. So people will enter on the basis of how much they think they know. And while there's not a terrific correspondence between how much people know and how much people think they know, <laughs> it's good enough. In, in the case of Google and other companies that are doing this, there's no financial cost, though, for an error, is there, other than the no. foregone money? No, that's right. So, well, but but that matters, right? That if you uh, have a risk of uh, not getting money, an opportunity cost is a, is a cost. Uh, though, notice Google is trying to avoid the the gambling laws and successful in that. So, uh, we'd want to compare. I take the the question to be the outcome of. Uh, low incentive prediction markets where all you get really is a chance to enter a lottery with a higher probability of winning and the high incentive um, 
uh, prediction markets like trade sports, and there are about a dozen on, right. on the internet. And uh, such work as there have been done, there's been done, finds uh, strikingly little difference in terms of the predictive power of the strong economic incentives and those in the predictive power of the virtual markets. So the the analysis suggests that they both work really well and not and the economic incentive doesn't produce significantly better outcomes. Now that's a bit of a puzzle. Uh, the way I respond to the puzzle is the people who are participating even in the virtual markets, they really want to get it right because there's something about reputation or honor or self-conception that drives their participation. So Google has been as successful in terms of the prices being probabilities as any market, even though the, as you say, the, the you're not going to lose a lot of money and you're not going to gain a lot if you win. It's the, the people at Google, they, they want to get it right. Well, I, you know, I, I think the, um, the opportunity to win is, is, is a strong incentive. But I'd presume that, and I don't know if you have any data on this, it'd be interesting to look at, I'd presume that the if we sort if we considered sort of three different levels of incentives, one no incentive other than honor, just a statistical average of just surveying people. Two, the opportunity to win, but everybody participates because they'd rather win than not win, than not participate because they could win. And then three, the case where you put your money down so that you exclude people who are unsure about their their knowledge at a certain level. The second one could do fine as long as the mid- the middle case where you only have the opportunity to win. You can't. You're not having to. You don't have to spend anything. That could do well as long as the people who are uh, missing uninformed are are uninformed around the average. So uh, or the correct answer. You know, the, I'd assume that the variance would be larger in that in that uh, setting. But as long as the say the Google employees are fairly well informed. Uh, around the average, so that there are people who guess that the office will open in Russia, you know, with a larger delay than the than the right answer. There, but there'll be others who'll be overly optimistic. Those folks will wash out. And I think there's an example you give in the book, the "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire" example, right? Right. Where where the uninformed people in the audience, okay, they mess up, but but there's enough informed people to push the answer to the right answer. Right. The surveys can do just fine if. Um even if a majority of people are just random guessers, if something like 30% or 40% is better than random guessers, because the 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 60 to 70% random guessers will have distribute their errors randomly, and then the plurality winner will be the the correct one. Now, this I think is for is really for the parlor game situation. And not for applications for business or government. Uh, but one interesting question is if you did a survey in the CIA about whether Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, uh, or if you had a prediction market in the CIA about whether Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, there's every reason to believe that the outcome would be less confident than the government was officially, just because there was pretty good dispersed information in the CIA about the difficulty of that question. Yeah, one of, one of the problems with political decision-making, of course, is that most political leaders are not going to uh, uh, hedge their bets, right? It's a general problem. It particularly reared its head in this case. But in general, we don't expect our leaders to say, well, you know, it's it's 70-30 or it's 65-35, but we're going ahead full steam ahead anyway. When, so, they, when they talk publicly, that's correct. Yeah. But, but the, the internal deliberation process within the government is crucial. 
And you can imagine a leader who, like Roosevelt actually, tried to get a lot of independent judgments from his advisors in, in order to ensure that he was adequately informed. Or you can imagine a leader, like I guess President Bush, evidently, who at least in some domains uh, doesn't do what a good uh, person in business does, which is to get a lot of independent judgments or to try to replicate some of the advantages of a prediction market. Incidentally, the Bush administration, I think to its great credit, did talk at an early stage about prediction markets as right. a way of understanding geopolitical events. Um, it got slapped down, mostly by the Democrats, who were very upset, but I think they didn't understand that this was not a way of enabling people to profit, for example, from uh, terrorist activity, but in a way of giving government some information that it might not otherwise have. Yeah, it was, it was, uh, they were influenced by a paper by my colleague, Robin Hansen, here at George Mason, that uh, got blown up into a weird, misshapen, steroidal version when it hit the press for both political, probably, and informational reasons. Uh, the version that was talked about was a sort of parody of of what uh, Robin had proposed and had suggested. And as you say, it was uh, slapped down for political reasons, either uh, out of ignorance or opportunism. It's always hard to tell. Right. Um, let's go. To, let's talk about deliberation, because that's also a very interesting uh, section of the book. We have a lot of romance about deliberation, uh, this, this sharing of ideas and the bouncing, you know, brainstorming and bouncing ideas off each other, give and take, uh, the debate produces good, good insights. And uh, you make quite a strong case that deliberation is a bit oversold. Talk about that. Yeah, um, both in government and in the private sector, deliberation seems to be the preferred way of making decisions. Um, uh, there are a couple problems with that. Uh, one is that people end up, after deliberation typically, thinking a more extreme version of what they thought before they started to talk. So I've been involved in a series of empirical studies of this. Um, our most recent involves uh, citizens in Colorado, where liberals in Boulder end up more favorable toward affirmative action after they talk together. Conservatives in Colorado Springs end up liking affirmative action a lot less after they talk to one another. And this is uh, as close as there is to an iron law of social interactions where people in deliberating groups end up more extreme in the same direction that they were heading before they started to talk. This affects risk-taking behavior also. Uh, people in business who were inclined to take risks are more enthusiastic about risk-taking after deliberating. If they're cautious and risk-averse, they end up being more cautious and less inclined to take risks after they talk with one another. So group polarization is one way that deliberation can lead to uh, error, though sometimes, of course, as Barry Goldwater said, the greater extremism is a good thing. Uh, an additional problem that is uh, more demonstrative of, of error is that uh, if people are suffering from some sort of uh, uh, confusion, uh, it's not. It's even worse than garbage in, garbage out in deliberating groups. Typically, some garbage in leads to more garbage out. So, so errors with respect to 
human cognition are frequently not just propagated in the deliberating group, but actually amplified. So if a group of people falls prey to the availability heuristic, which means that people assess probabilities by asking if they can think of a recent example, which can lead to underestimate and overestimate of risk, uh, groups often actually are worse victims of the availability heuristic than individuals. So there's group polarization, there's amplification of error, and often groups emphasize uh, shared information at the expense of uniquely held information. So if you're a deliberating group where a bunch of people actually know something, uh, have little bits of information that no one else has, those tend to play very little role in the deliberation. And the shared information, what everyone knows, that isn't dispersed, that has the dominant role. And this can get groups in big trouble where the uniquely held information, which is crucial, is downplayed or disregarded. And the deliberating group marches happily in the direction indicated by the shared information. One of the challenges of this – it's a very interesting set of insights. One of the challenges is, let's take the government level. You talk about um, the weapons of mass destruction issue, and the other example in the book that springs to mind is the, the Bay of Pigs invasion. Uh, exposed, a lot of the people who were skeptical uh, are willing to reveal that they were skeptical and that they kept their mouth shut because of the dynamics of the group. And we all understand that. We all understand the – the costs of sharing that individually held information. It may not just be information. It may be uh, something more subtle, such as judgment or intuition. It's hard to describe, but we're not just talking here about issues that, that are tangible, but subtle and, and difficult and important things, such as wisdom, real wisdom, not just facts. And in those situations, uh, what's fascinating about it is that is that exposed people will reveal that they they kept quiet, the problem is that those are exposed after things that didn't go well. So the the question is, although the, again the the mechanism is clear that that this is a problem, uh, do do we know that it's we don't know do do we have an indication that it, that it's true? And here, here's here's the proof of the pudding. As you suggested earlier, Roosevelt was wise to to survey people individually so that these group dynamic effects didn't contaminate the sharing of individual information. If it's really true that the groups don't deliberate well, you'd think there'd be less deliberation in these settings, although, of course, deliberation could be used for other reasons besides getting at the truth. But you'd think there'd be less, and you'd think there'd be ways to avoid some of these these biases. It, are there such ways? Do you think these my worries are, are real about these exposed revelations? Well, um, it is true that absolutely that ex post revelations may not tell us a lot about what happens in the general run. So uh, the only way to figure this out is to have controlled experiments and then to see if the real world is relevantly different. So uh, there are a bunch of controlled experiments now that show that deliberating groups end up thinking a more extreme version of what uh, people thought before they started to talk. So that is really robust in the experimental setting. Um, I've done a bunch of studies now of federal judicial behavior, and these are experts who are uh, learned in the law. 
And in ideologically contested cases, Democratic appointees to the federal bench are much more liberal when they're sitting on three-judge panels just with Democratic appointees than they are with one Republican there. So the phenomenon of like-minded people ending up going to extremes is uh, uh, demonstrated very vividly by federal judicial voting by Democratic appointees. I don't mean to beat up on the Democrats in particular here because the Republican appointees are much more conservative in their voting patterns on three-judge panels when it's just Republican appointees. When there's a Democratic appointee, they're far more moderate in their votes. So th this, is, this is not experimental. This is uh, real data based on publicly available votes. We have about 25,000 of them counted. Um, in the private sector, the uh, the best functioning companies in the U.S. Uh, often have uh, boards of deliberators that are uh, contentious, uh, full of dissent. Uh, they, they take steps to avoid the group polarization phenomenon. They cultivate disagreement. So I guess what I'd say about deliberation is that it's uh, vulnerable to the polarization phenomenon, to what are called hidden profiles, that is when uniquely held information doesn't get out, to the uh, some garbage in, more garbage out phenomena. But uh, there are ways of structuring deliberation so that it, it, it works better. So we know from experimental settings that uh, all three happen. We have reason to believe they're replicated in the world. Uh, the private companies that do best, uh, investment clubs that do best, take uh, institutional steps sometimes steps that involve the inculcation of norms of dissent and disagreement that, that turn out to work against um, uh, the worst of these phenomena. So what I would say about deliberation is not that it should be ended as a social practice. Uh, in some domains, it does work very well, where there's a eureka problem, when once the answer is announced, everyone says eureka, their deliberation uh, succeeds, which is why large groups can solve crossword puzzles better hmm. than small groups. Sure. Um, and sometimes uh, uh, problems that are faced by companies or government have this feature. Uh, but the, the goal ought not to be to uh, uh, just to trash deliberation, but to figure out the mechanisms that lead it to uh, work less well and see what can do, be done to counteract that. So the next president of the United States should follow a model much more Reagan was relevantly like Roosevelt, whether it was Reagan personally, who knows. But Reagan, the Reagan administration had a lot of contestation on many issues, and that was helpful to avoiding error. Yeah, and I think that's right. I, I, I just want to challenge the judicial finding for a sec and get your reaction. The... the um, the alternative explanation is, I assume, and I assume you thought of this, but talk about it. The alternative explanation is that when you're on an all-democratic or an all-republican panel of judges, the uh, you know how the outcome is going to turn out, so uh, you may as well join in. There's no real cost to, to to voting along the lines of your colleagues, and that there's so there's a different uh, set of incentives going along there when you're with a, a more unknown group. Well, that may help. That may be one of the mechanisms that help explains why group polarization occurs. So I've, I've said that 
deliberating groups end up in a more extreme point in line with their pre-deliberation tendency. But I haven't said why that happens. And if we observe that the Democratic appointees get super liberal, say, in uh, sex discrimination cases when they're just with one another, something like what you described may be the reason that they think, well, I'll go along with my other liberal Democrats, whose views I predict to be liberal, and uh, with a Republican there, you're kind of on your mettle more, the outcome is uncertain, you may have an incentive to think harder about uh, what the law actually is, and that seems a very plausible explanation for some of the phenomenon we we we, uh, we find. So I guess what I'd say about group polarization is that there are several accounts of why it might occur, why a why a deliberating group might end up getting more extreme in line with its pre-deliberation tendency. And uh, and the one you sketch is definitely one. But it's generally harmless if the vote's 3-0 versus 2-1, to one, whereas in these other situations, whether to proceed with a merger or product development, say, or an acquisition in the case of a corporate setting, there the, uh, the outcome uh, – you, you want to make sure that you get folks who are going to – uh, be skeptical, so I would think that that would make more of a difference. Well, it is harmless if it's three zero to two two to one, but the stakes aren't zero because if uh, there's a one who's dissenting, then the likelihood of Supreme Court view review is increased. It's also the case that the likelihood that the full court of appeals, rather than just three judge panel, will hear it. It's also the case that the dissenting opinion will affect posterity because dissenting opinions often are read carefully in future cases. So the fact that the uh, the Republicans gets very conservative on a three-judge panel, I think, isn't just a free rider effect. Um, I'll tell you another bit of data that's, that's uh, intriguing, which is a Republican sitting with two Democratic appointees behaves a bit, uh, quite a bit like a Democrat sitting with two Republican appointees. Mm-hmm. So Republicans show about the same percentage of liberal voting when they're sitting with two Democrats as Democrats do when they're sitting with two Republicans. Mm-hmm. They, they are, these people are indistinguishable. So Clinton appointees sitting with Reagan appointees vote like Reagan appointees sitting with Clinton appointees. <laughs> That's a bit of a uh, testimony to the power of social influences. Well, but you know, going back to the three-zero vote, it could be it's strategic again that they just uh, they want to make sure that it doesn't get struck down. But but I, I take I yeah, t- it could be sure. I, I, I take, mean that 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 may be. I take yeah. the general point; it's quite interesting. Just as a, an aside, you've got uh, more experience in this world than than I do, and than I'm sure most of our listeners. Uh, we have this image of Supreme Court decisions of um, Supreme Court justices listening. It's a different example of deliberation, but we, they they listen to the to the um, briefs on both sides, and they challenge, and they they argue both implicitly with each other through this process. But they're hearing both sides in this active way, and then we have this idea that they they go home and mull it over, and they don't deliberate explicitly the way um, uh, these group decisions are getting made that we're talking about in a corporate or government setting, where the deliberations among the deciders. They, they weigh the evidence. They look into their heart, uh, and your, your evidence on the three-judge panels is that well, you know, maybe they don't just look into their heart. They make strategic or ideological blunders. Uh, but the Supreme Court, what evidence do we have that they actually deliberate beyond just listening to the arguments? That they communicate with each other, or that their clerks communicate with each other? I know there's been some 
correspondence of, of Supreme Court justices uh, in olden days that suggested that, that they did uh, a little more um, conversation than, than we're aware of out here in the, uh, in the hinterlands. Well, we know that the justices go into something called a conference uh, to discuss the cases. So their voting is done as part of a deliberative process where they exchange reasons. Um, Chief Justice Rehnquist was sometimes criticized for not having as uh, detailed and lengthy deliberative process as some of the other justices wanted. And it's said that Chief Justice Roberts is more enthusiastic about a lengthy give and take. But there's no question that there's a conference in which they're all sitting there and exchanging reasons. And there's also no question that after the opinion is circulated, there's uh, written uh, give and take and sometimes oral give and take. So if Justice Kennedy circulates an opinion which Chief Justice Roberts uh, doesn't much like, though he agrees with the conclusion. Uh, he will either send a memorandum uh, to the conference, that's what it's called, saying, uh, I wish the analysis looked like this, would you be willing to change it? Or he might discuss it orally with him. Uh, the, the, I clerked there a number of years ago, and uh, some of the justices would more uh, readily talk to one another face-to-face. They go into each other's chambers and talk about an opinion, the, how, to, how to write it best, or they talk about uh, how an opinion might be changed if it's circulated. So there's non-trivial deliberation uh, within the court on the, on the substantive issues. Whether justices change each other's minds uh, often, uh, we don't have much evidence one way or the other, it would be stunning if no justice ever changed another justice's <laughs> mind. Sure. There is there is strategic voting on occasion, uh, probably not a lot, but these are people who interact with one another and uh, basically like each other. And uh, if there's uh, tit for tat once every decade, that wouldn't be a shock. Do you think we ought to keep them separated from each other and avoid some of these uh, polarizing and hidden profile and Informational cascade problems you talked well, about in the book. Good, it's a good question. Uh, I have, seclude them into. You know. <laughs> well, I, I guess I think the the best way for a deliberating group to go is for, in general, is for there to be uh, anonymous private statements of view first um, before the deliberative process uh, can. Uh, deprive group members of conclusions that people hold. So I guess uh, instead of secluding them and having never them talk, never talk with one another, it would probably be good to have some mechanism where they announce their views uh, before the deliberative process ensures that they don't hear what people antecedently thought. Mm-hmm. That would be a check on this. One thing, though, about the Supreme Court is that there are nine of them, and uh, there's, there's a fair bit of diversity there. And so the notion that they're going to stampede in one direction or another, um, that's not so likely. So both the, their strength of will, which most of them have a lot of, and their diversity of approach and method is a, is a safeguard against uh, some of the phenomena that uh, other government agencies and businesses are subject to. But as an amateur observer, uh, I wish there were more diversity. Um, I feel like the confirmation process has ruled out the the, the inherent uh, combative nature of it has ruled out a lot of the more interesting people on the left and the right. 
who I think would enhance that diversity a great deal. There's there's a whole bunch. Some of the most creative and and interesting legal thinkers are unimaginable as uh, potential confirmees because of their peculiar nature, or their views, or their social habits, or their personalities. Uh, and those are folks I think we'd want on there. It's a shame. Do you agree? Um, well, I think it's a good point. Whether it's a decisive point, I just don't know. The, there's a trade-off between um, uh, between ensuring a degree of moderation, which has its virtues, and assuring a high level of intellectual diversity, which has its virtues. And I'm not sure whether we're at the optimal point or not. It wouldn't be good to have on the court people who think that um, racial segregation is okay or the Constitution doesn't protect property rights, even though there are people who are smart who who veer in the direction of both of those views. That's not the kind of diversity I had in mind. I was thinking more of a creative uh Really, really, really smart people, I think, have a harder time getting on the court than I wish they did, but maybe, well, I'm, I, I, maybe I'm wrong. I wonder, I, I wonder about that. Um, Roberts, Chief Justice Roberts, is a really, really, really smart guy, and uh, Breyer uh, is, is very smart, and Alito is, you know, was known as a very sharp guy, so I, I don't think we have a dearth of ability on the court right now. I mean, it's not, those aren't the nine top lawyers in the United States, but they're uh, in the top, very few top percentiles, I'd say. We're, we're, yeah, we're not in the Haruska world. Senator Haruska of Nebraska, I think, said that mediocrity yeah. deserves its representation yeah. on the Supreme Court. Yeah. I don't think we're there yet. Yeah, uh, no. Uh, so in turn, I take your point about um, about diversity and creativity. We We don't have uh, Scalia is, has a high degree of creativity, but he was a colleague of mine, you know, and while he was a quite good law professor, um, he was not immensely creative. He's a more creative and better judge than he was a law professor. So uh, it's true he's the most creative. This is a point for you. He is the most creative, and he's not. If you took the excellent law professors in the late 1970s, he might well be on the list, but no one would single him out as the most creative. Uh, Let's turn to uh, prediction markets again, and you invoke uh, Hayek's 1945 article from the American Economic Review, The Use of Knowledge in Society, which is my favorite article that is not well known in the profession. It used to be. uh, I went to graduate school in the uh, late 70s, and it was still required reading at the University of Chicago. Uh, I don't know if it's still required reading there, but my guess is it's required reading at fewer and fewer places. But you use it a lot in the, in the book, and you use it as a way of uh, describing the virtues of prediction markets, and you also uh, criticize Hayek a little bit. Talk about the the virtues and vices of Hayek. Okay, I love Hayek, and I think this article should be read by all graduate students in all fields, and maybe by all people in all fields. Uh, This is his, uh, I think, his largest contribution to social knowledge, and the idea is that information is really dispersed, that uh, each of us has a bit of information. Um, uh, It is profoundly to be hoped and likely about something, and that... uh, the price system is a marvel in Hayek's words because it can aggregate the information in one place. It provides a signal of our beliefs, our 
uh, experiences in our case. And so this is a phenomenal thought whose implications, it seems to me, have yet to be adequately exploited. Uh, so the idea is a prediction market is a, has a Hayekian feature where a bunch of people uh, at Google, let's say, with their bits of information on whether a product will be available or whether people will like it, uh, invest uh, in in the the market, and what emerges is a price. And so the prediction market has the signaling feature and the aggregative feature of a price for sneakers or uh, Toyota stock or, or whatever. So on this view, the the Hayek essentially had it right about the virtues of the price system and the uh, amazing success of the prediction market is a tribute to his claim. I guess my criticism of Hayek is that uh, the same sorts of problems that can make deliberation go wrong can make the price system go wrong, though there's a, there are correctives that make the errors in the price system uh, less robust, uh, less enduring. But you, you could get, and you, we do get, um, uh, fads and fashions in uh, commodities or in stocks. And so at least for a time, uh, things can get out of whack. So uh, Schiller's book, Irrational Exuberance, I think has been vindicated that, and that's basically a behavioral book suggesting that some uh, prices uh, uh, are wrong, even though they're aggregation, because the people who are contributing to the prices are wrong. Now, I think Schiller is right with respect to the stock market, and sometimes this works for restaurant prices or commodity prices. Uh, I'm not so worried about it in prediction markets because uh, the the record's so good. So uh, the behavioral critique of Hayek, which is that the stock market prices can be wrong for non-trivial times, uh, periods of time, seems not to have empirical support in the domain of prediction markets yet. There have been efforts to inflate Pat Buchanan and Hillary Clinton on the Iowa uh, the Iowa electronic markets to get Buchanan looking like he's really got a chance and to get Hillary Clinton at an earlier election looking like she was going to get in and do well. Um, but they failed because the traders saw, look, this, these are getting inflated and we can win a lot of money by... Um, by betting against Buchanan and, and Clinton, and it straightened itself out. Well, that also holds for for stock markets, right? There are so-called fads or bubbles, but and eventually they they pop. Uh, whether they pop at quote the right time or not is is, I guess, a question. But but there, are markets that mispredict always have arbitrage opportunities for people to make money. It's just a question of how long it might take for that money to be made. But the the, the issue I want to focus on is the product market example. The issue of fads or behavioral mistakes that people might make in pricing or uh, buying uh, various products. And there I think you've squeezed Hayek into a box he wouldn't want to be in. Um, Hayek never claimed that prices were right. He never claimed that, that you need to get the right price or that it's, or that it's measurable, that it's, that it's at all possible to figure out what the right price is for, for a pencil or a uh, an hour of a consultant's time or any any kind of product or service. What Hayek, I think, was interested in was was solving the problem of of order and this dispersion of information in the face of social change. 
So in the use of knowledge in society, when he talks about a change in the demand for tin or the supply of tin, some some product, that, an input into the process, he's interested in how society could respond to that change and what information would be needed to respond to that in a way that would allow people to continue making decisions. So I, I think you, you're, you've put Hayek into a, what I would call a Samuelsonian Aero-Debra box that was a box that he explicitly rejected. So I, what do you think of that? Okay, that's good. I, 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 don't, I, I don't mean to say that Hayek thought that uh, markets are – the, the market price is perfect, and the 1945 article doesn't say that. So I guess it's, it would be better for me to say that uh, those who, who understand Hayek's arguments to suggest that stock markets are always optimally priced, like some of the efficient capital, efficient capital markets people at my institution, the University of Chicago, that they there's a great deal of truth in what they say, and Hayek provides the mechanism to explain it. Um, and the notion that individual traders can outperform markets, uh, traders do that at their own risk. Um, the, the only point is, which I'm interested in for purposes of figuring out prediction markets, is that uh, is it the case that the uh, existence of errors that can endure for a long time in stock markets or in commodity prices, something which you say probably rightly Hayek uh, isn't rejecting, that that could confound the prediction markets too, where we could have a price, let's say, for months, which suggests an error. And that would be a real problem for the thesis of my book, which is that prediction markets are the most successful aggregate of mechanism we have for uh, for compiling dispersed information. We don't have evidence of prediction markets really screwing up in domains where there is dispersed information, and that seems to me noteworthy. Do you want to push them farther in government and I do. I, I think the EPA should be using prediction markets in terms of uh, thinking about climate change and other environmental problems. I think your colleague Robin Hansen is uh, exactly right in suggesting that the public sector should be relying on this much more. I think we should see many more experiments in the private sector. Uh, the limits of, of the prediction markets, uh, we're going to learn something about, but so far the limits seem... Uh, uh, the, the the promise is is there. Most of the companies you named, I remember three of them uh, in, in the conversation. I don't remember them from the book that are using them privately: Google, Hewlett Packard, Microsoft. What was the four? you mentioned a fourth one? Eli Lilly. Eli Lilly. I don't know where Eli Lilly is, but three of them are on the uh, the West Coast that you named. Right. Uh, do you think this is going to? Is it growing? Is it a? I mean, this idea of using internal uh, prediction markets for forecasting at the corporate levels seems like an extremely appealing idea. Yeah, it, it is growing. Um, some companies are nervous about talking about it, and it's because of the securities loss. Because if you have an internal market that suggests uh, things aren't going so great, uh, you probably have to disclose that. Or at least your lawyers will tell you you might have to disclose that in the prospectus. So it is, uh, it's here. I bet we'll see a lot more of it. Uh, um, it's a trick to try to figure out, uh, what's actually happening on the ground because the companies don't like to, don't like to tell. Well, should we repeal those, those 
laws or at least make an exemption well, and, and gambling as well. We, what we need, it seems like, is is really active gambling with uh, high potential for really negative information in these corporate markets. Yeah, I think we should <laughs> be doing a lot of uh, deregulating uh, in order to allow prediction markets to flourish. Yes, I think there's no question about that. that too readily, both the gambling laws and the, those are the first and most serious obstacle, but also the securities laws are, um, are preventing experiments that would be uh, very good for everyone. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, let's close with the topic that, uh, that you end the book with, which is uh, how open source software and the Wikipedia phenomenon aggregate information. Uh, talk about that. Well, the uh, open source software has been uh, 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 a standing success where uh, instead of having proprietary software like at Microsoft, uh, the source code is available to users on condition that they make it available to people uh, to whom they sell it. So the idea behind open source software is that uh, you know all the ingredients and you can make it better. And what's happened is there's a culture of uh, hackers or uh, improvers who can see how the mechanism is working, how the code is working, and they can they can improve it. Um, it's not proprietary. And a lot of the software on whatever computer you're using right now, you being the listener or you, is, uh, is open source. So it, it does tend to collect dispersed information. Whether in the end open source software will outperform proprietary software in all domains is doubtful because the economic incentive of ownership can be a real spur. Um, but in, in terms of uh, hacking, often the people who are making improvements are uh, just really interested in it. So they're willing to do it even if they're not going to gain economically from it. Right. I think a lot of economists would not have predicted its success or would have predicted its failure because of the lack of incentives. But it's clear there's an incentive. It's just not monetary. It's love, right. love, passion, fascination, diversion. Um, we had Kevin Kelly on here a few weeks back, and he talked about the extraordinary role the Internet plays and how much of the Internet that we love and enjoy comes from people who did it for fun. Right. What a great thing. Yeah, right, absolutely. Now, Wikip Wikipedia has a similar feature. Yeah, Wikipedia – what's extraordinary about Wikipedia is the um, – its, rel its relative accuracy. There was a, a highly contested survey uh, – that I think I can't remember who did it. You might know. Trying to compare the accuracy of the Encyclopedia Britannica with Wikipedia, and Wikipedia did did surprisingly well. Yeah, the Wikipedia and um, the Encyclopedia Britannica were about the same in um, in terms of their errors. Now, even if that's not right. Um, it just is the case that Wikipedia is working much better than uh, a lot of people expected. Absolutely. And and the reason is that it's aggregating dispersed information and that the uh, contributors uh, outnumber and outwork the vandals. Yep. Uh, so it has a similar feature to open source software. And many companies uh, now are using the wiki model. In fact, the publisher of my book, um, Oxford University Press, during the course of the book, just told me that we have a, uh, the equivalent of a wiki with respect to books, 
where people can update constantly on the basis of a shared platform, and it really works. What are they updating? I'm sorry, I don't understand. Well, okay, I'll give you that example, and I'll give you another one that is is really fascinating. Uh, what they do is, suppose you have a, a publisher uh, who has a book that's in progress, and it takes a turn. It's going to actually be much more, um, have much more trade potential than people anticipated. Or the emphasis is going to switch. Originally, this was a book, let's suppose, about deliberation as a social phenomenon. It changes to be a, be a book about wikis and open source software and prediction markets. That might be very important for the company, for everyone in the company to know. So if there's a wiki there, instead of email or uh, pieces of paper, uh, what's put on the book is what, what's put on the wiki is what's actually happening with this book now. And everyone has access to it and can fix it so that everyone will immediately see what this uh, product is going to be like in a way that might have implications for uh, marketing and sales, likely to. So in, in publishing, I know a number of companies now use uh, wikis or wiki uh, equivalents so that everyone can see immediately uh, how uh, how things are developing in real time rather than having something more cumbersome where there are contradictory emails or uh, pieces of paper which is very hard to make sense of or at the sales meeting at the you know after the book's already done and it's a it's a, just about to come out people suddenly find out it's a different book than they thought right Right, exactly. So the the uh, more exciting maybe idea is uh, the CIA now has something called Intellipedia, which is based on Wikipedia software. And while, thank goodness, we can't get access to it because it's secret stuff, uh, hundreds of people at the CIA can. And Intellipedia really is Wikipedia for uh, intelligence. And the, the notion is to build on the what I think is a roughly Hayekian process of aggregating dispersed information. And so long as it can't be ruined by vandals, and so long as the people are knowledgeable and have their own bits of information, this is something where the CIA can see stuff. And it's clearly in part a response to the intelligence failures connected with September 11th and yep. the weapons of mass destruction. Now, it seems like a a great idea. In fact, it's trying to get at it's trying to get at the prediction market effect without there's no the monetary incentive isn't there, which is a drawback. But it's allowing uh, some sort of communal wisdom of that crowd to be to produce something. And there could be some vandals, and maybe that even in that could I even imagine where you know uh, a, a, a cynic or a skeptic or a semi-vandal would provoke true deliberation in a more anonymous uh, venue, which might avoid some of the problem, the social problems that the deliberation uh, process, if the people were all face-to-face in the same room, creates. So that, it's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Uh, one example you don't mention, which, which, I, which I love, it comes from Simon Winchester's book, uh, The Madman and the Professor. He talks about the Oxford English Dictionary, which was a pre-internet wiki where the designers of the the writers the editors of the dictionary uh, wanted to find examples from English literature where words were first used, mm. and um, they just relied on a voluntary process of people sending in little slips of paper. And interestingly, very few people contributed an enormous number of those, akin to Wikipedia, which is I think you mentioned as as a some concern. 
But I think the idea there is that if enough, uh, if if a few, if a small group is doing an enormous amount of the work, the tail, the rest of us of that dog are, are keeping an eye on it. So right. if there's there's an egregious error, we can we can fix it. Right. Absolutely. And that's one reason Wikipedia works, and it's to be hoped that Intellipedia is working for similar reasons. Any other places in the government where it's on the rise, potentially? You mentioned the EPA. It's a good idea. Yeah, well, I'd like to see it at the SCC also. The SCC is making lots of predictions about the effects of, for example, deregulating the cross-ownership rules on program content. A prediction market on, on that would be useful. My prediction, incidentally, is that uh, what um, uh, the diversity on the atmosphere is a reflection of consumer demand and not of who happens to own it. Mm-hmm. So if you have a bunch of uh, white Republicans owning a company, if they have a lot to gain from having an audience that's Hispanic, then they'll cater to the Hispanic audience. It would be nice to see what the people at the FCC think if they're betting on it. Yeah, that would be interesting. Well, my guest today has been Cass Sunstein, the Carl N. Llewellyn Distinguished Service Professor of Jurisprudence in the Law School at the University of Chicago and the author most recently of Infotopia. Thanks for joining us, Cass. Thank you. enjoyed it much. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.